Well, good morning. Um, my name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't been introduced yet, and if we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, I hope we get the opportunity to do that after service this morning. We are in a study, as Lisa said earlier, on the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible, specifically for the ancient Israelites. And this was their songbook hundreds of years before Jesus uh, ever walked the earth. It was one of the ways that they could express the thoughts and the feelings, the emotions, the desires, the wants and the needs that they personally experienced uh, to God himself. A lot of the Psalms are full of praise and thanksgiving. But as we saw last week and Lisa referenced today, um, not all of them were overly positive. Uh, many of them actually expressed um, what a lot of us go through in life, um, concern, anger, uh, confusion, doubt even at times, hurt and pain. We call these lament psalms. They were an opportunity to express what the Israelites were experiencing personally and corporately to God um, in in song and often in poetry. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a very unique category of psalms. That's what we're doing in this series is we're breaking down these songs in the psalms into their big overarching categories and we're just taking a look one one category a week. And today we're going to talk about royal psalms. And as you can imagine from just that title, these psalms have to do with the monarchy in ancient Israel. Now you might ask, why in the world would the Israelites sing about their monarchy um, when they go to their version of church in the temple uh, or in the tabernacle or in the synagogues? Why would they go and then sing about uh, whoever was sitting on the throne at the time? It seems a little strange. And um, these royal psalms often uh, were composed to, uh, to correspond to a high point in the monarch's life. For example, today we're going to look at Psalm number two, um, which was originally a coronation song for the king of Israel. And what we'll see is that they start to remind the people of certain promises that God had made to them. And then there's a deeper meaning that we'll come to see that these psalms also play a very special role and connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, connecting Jesus to the promises that were made hundreds of years before. Now, before we jump into Psalm number two, I want to kind of go back in the scriptures a little bit to 2 Samuel. And the reason we're going to do that is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes some promises to David, who will become King David, David will be the second monarch, uh, the second king in the history of the Israelite people. God is going to speak to David through his prophet Nathan and is going to share some things, some promises that will be central and key to all the royal psalms. They're going to influence how these psalms and these songs were written and understood by the people. And so if you want to follow along with us, you can use this QR code, or if you brought a Bible, you can follow along with us. In that way, we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. And this begins some promises that God makes to King David. And then as we jump into the psalm, these will make a lot more sense. And so here's the promise 
that God makes to David, at least part of it. It says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So God is speaking to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan is supposed to share this with David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make for you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever. He shall build for a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, with him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son so here's, let's break this down. God makes some promises to David as he's becoming king. And there are a couple pieces of this promise. First, God says, hey, I'm going to give my people a home. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is by establishing a house for their king. One of the other things that God promised is that he was going to provide deliverance from all of Israel's enemies. And then there are some really big picture promises made here. That the line of David's successors, those who will continue to sit on David's throne, will inherit what God calls an eternal throne. And that these anointed ones will be called God's own sons. So those are some really, really important pieces of the promise that are going to influence how the Israelites would sing these songs that had to do with their king. And so to set the, the, the tone for today, what we recognize is that when we read the Psalms, especially the royal Psalms, there's several layers of significance. And then here, here's how we're going to approach it today. Today we're going to start with the top layer, really looking at how did this Psalm, Psalm 2 specifically, uh, how did it have a, a significant role in the life of the Israelites when they would sing this song? And then we're going to start to dig a little deeper. Not only are we going to look how this fits within this perspective of a Davidic king, that means just a king that came from David's line, but as we dig deeper, what we're going to realize and what we're going to see is that for the early Christians... Psalms like this, and specifically Psalm 2, started to take on much more significant meaning. Because not only do these songs talk about the actual king, they imagine an ideal king. The kind of king that really no human could really fulfill. And they're going to start to imagine an ideal king that would come. And as the early Christians started to reflect on the Old Testament... They started to see Jesus appear in the pages. And as we'll see, they started to see Jesus appear in Psalm number two. Psalm number two, along with Psalm 110, are the most quoted sections of the Old Testament in the New Testament. They're one of the most important passages 
for the early Christians. So we're going to start diving into Psalm number two together. We're going to break it up into four sections. And we're going to do that for a couple reasons. If you um, actually have your Bible open, uh, you'll notice that it's divided into four sections in your paper Bible. There's three verses and then a space, and then three verses, and then a space. So we're going to follow along with that division. And the reason we'll do it is what we'll notice is that each section has, comes from a different perspective and a different focus. The first one will be a focus towards the whole world, but in a pretty judgmental uh, perspective. Then we're going to turn our attention to God the Father in heaven from the perspective of the congregation. Then we'll look at uh, the perspective will be to God the Father in heaven from the perspective of this anointed king, this anointed son. And then we'll turn back to looking at the world, but with quite a different perspective and tone as we close out. So let's start by looking at this first section in Psalm number two. This is how it begins. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So as this psalm is starting, it's almost as the writer of this song is sort of asking this question of like, what in the world is going on? Who's really in charge? Now, if we're honest... Some of you, maybe, maybe all of us, have at one time or another asked this question. We felt this way. We've looked up and said, are you listening? Do you care? Do you see what's going on all around us? That's kind of how the psalmist is starting out. Why are things going this way? Here in the beginning, in this first verse, there's a word used. It's translated here, plot. Why, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And this is actually the exact same word that's used in Psalm number one uh, that we read a few weeks ago. But it was translated a little differently. This was from Psalm number one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. This is the same word that's used in Psalm one and two. And so we get this contrast between those who are blessed, who are happy, who find joy in life because they're spending all of their energy meditating on the scriptures versus we get this picture of the world who's spending all of their energy meditating on how they can fight against what God is trying to do in this world. And then something interesting, I don't know if you noticed it, comes out, but there's a reference to the anointed. Now, in most of your English Bibles, this is capitalized. Now, that's, that's something that the translators of your English Bible are trying to draw your attention to because this is translated from ancient Hebrew. And in Hebrew, there are no lowercase and uppercase letters. So in the Hebrew, this wasn't uppercase. 
But your translators are trying to draw your attention to there's a significance in this word. So this word anointed comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which we transliterate Messiah. The Hebrew word that we understand as Messiah literally means an anointed one. Just as an interesting point of fact, our English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which also means anointed one. So Messiah and Christ both mean anointed one. And they can carry multiple meanings. And really, you can have this idea of a lowercase Messiah, which is just any one of God's anointed. The king was anointed. He's sort of like a lowercase Messiah. But then you have this idea of uh, uppercase Messiah, a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of anointed one. And the translators of your English Bible are trying to help you draw your attention that something special is going on in this song. And then we also have this other interesting idea. In talking about the world and their scheming, it says that it's putting words into the, the outsiders' mouths, into the world's mouths of saying, let us burst their bonds apart between God and his anointed one and cast away their cords from us. Essentially, this idea of these bonds or these cords are a way of expressing that what a lot of us probably experience. That the world sees an allegiance and submission to God as bondage and as slavery. But we know that submission to God brings true freedom. It's actually rebelling against God that brings real slavery. Here's how Jesus said it in John chapter 8. In John 8, this is what Jesus says. He's speaking to a large group of people, and he answers them. They're having this conversation, asking one another questions, and Jesus replies to him at one point saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The reality is that we are all slaves of something. We're all servants of something. Really, it's just a question of what. Are you a servant of the world? Of culture? Are you a servant to your own desires and sin? Or are you a servant of God? It's not really a matter of if, but really to whom or to what. And then Jesus draws this interesting parallel between a son and a servant, which seems odd. But if you think about it for a minute, it, it, it makes sense. From the outside perspective, for a short window of time, there isn't a whole lot of difference between a servant and a son. Both are expected to be obedient and allegiant to the father. Both are expected to do what the father says. Teenagers, this may be the most relevant thing you hear today. Because sometimes you feel like a servant, right? Clean your room, do the dishes, pick up after the dog, take the dog on a walk. 
But here's the difference. The son has a home with the father. Servants just working there. So from the outside looking in, sometimes it can seem like maybe there isn't a lot of difference. Listen, it's true. God demands our allegiance and our loyalty and our obedience. But so does the world. The world demands our loyalty. It expects our allegiance and our obedience. And if the wind of culture changes tomorrow, the world expects you to get in line. But here's the difference. God invites you into a relationship with himself. He offers life. And he's willing to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law that you can't fill on your behalf. The world, the world has no loyalties to you. The world doesn't care about you. The world is waiting to chew you up and to spit you out. The world demands everything, but offers nothing. God demands your whole life, but in exchange, offers to give you a better and more abundant and eternal life in return. The world thinks we're in bondage to a religious system, but we know that we're in relationship to a loving God. And so the world looks and thinks that it can see bondage. But the reality is we know that in God we find real freedom. Let's keep reading. The next section. We're going to change perspectives now because instead of looking at the world, we're now going to look at God the Father in heaven. Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The biblical writers don't want to just express truth to you. They want to impress truth upon you. And they'll use stylistic language to do that. So, uh, exaggeration and hyperbole, metaphor, contrast, using surprising language. They'll do these things to kind of grab your attention, to impress upon you this message. And so here they have God in heaven just laughing. You know what this reminds me of? Uh, How many of you have seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, so for most of you, this will make sense. This is what this reminds me of. Do you remember the scene when Indiana Jones, he's running through the town, and um, all of a sudden, as he's being pursued, he comes into this huge crowd, and in an instant, the whole crowd splits open, and here is this guy carrying this enormous sword. Do you remember the scene? This is what the scene looks like. Here's Indiana Jones, and this man has this enormous sword, and he starts flinging it all around, doing all these impressive moves, entirely intended to intimidate Indiana Jones to let him know 
Look at my skill and my weapon. This is a picture of what's about to happen to you. And if you know the movie, Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, stands there, looks at him, and then just pulls out a gun, and it's done. And then he just moves on, right? That's what this, this scene in this movie reminds me of this scene in the Psalms. The nations are plotting and scheming against God, and we open up this song almost in like, oh no, what's going to happen? Is God even in control? Is he going to do anything? And then God's in heaven kind of chuckling as if the nations are really a threat at all to him. But then we shift from his laughter to his wrath. A reminder that the nations or God's enemies aren't going to get away with anything. It's not that God isn't going to bring judgment. It's just delayed judgment. But the Bible talks about this delayed judgment and what purpose it serves. In 2 Peter... Uh, Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, is reflecting on this very idea about the brutality of what's going on around them and in their world and why isn't God doing something about it right now? Here's what Peter says. But by the same word, so the word that created the heavens and the earth, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's reminding his readers, hey, it's not that God isn't going to act. He just hasn't acted yet. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as is one day, reminding us God works on a different time frame than we do. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter reminds us that God's delay in providing judgment is an act of grace because it's giving more time for people to repent. That's the story of Paul, isn't it? Paul raged against the church. He devoted his life to destroying the work that God was doing. And God was patient. And Paul's life was transformed and he became not, he went from being the greatest destroyer of God's church to the greatest builder of God's church. And then comes the mighty declaration of God's installment of his king. So in its historical context, this was one of the Davidic kings. We don't know exactly which one. Maybe this was a song written for David's coronation, maybe for his son or his grandson. And we know that David himself did win many victories over their rival nations and the people uh, who threatened God's people. But as we'll see in a minute, this is going to take on new depth when looking at it through the light of Jesus. But regardless, the point is still true for us today, as it was for the Israelites who sang this song almost 3,000 years ago. Don't let the current condition of our world or the current times deceive you. There's only one supreme ruler. He rules ultimately not from a local throne, but from a heavenly one. Let's move on to the next section. 
starting in verse 7. I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me. So now we're speaking still to God the Father, but now we're coming from the perspective of this anointed one, this anointed king. And he's saying, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Remember what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that to be God's anointed one was to be his son. And God did use the anointed king to accomplish this on a very time-limited and micro scale. But God will accomplish this fully on a universal scale through another king. Let's move on to this final section, Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. And this is how it closes. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what we, we started this song looking at the world looking at how they come together to plot and to scheme against the work of God. And now we're going to close by turning our attention back to the world, but from a very different perspective. Based on the trajectory of this song, at this point, we would expect the, the attention to turn back to the world as God just destroys all of his enemies. We would expect God's wrath and anger to be on full display but that's not what we see. Actually, it's the opposite. Instead, we turn our attention back to the world from the perspective of God's grace as he appeals to all to turn from their sin and turn to him. This was always God's plan. This was always God's plan for the nations. When we think about the people of Israel, this whole kingdom that this song exists within, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, it's the beginning of the Israelite people. It's when God establishes them as a new people and his people. And here's the promise that God makes to Abraham, who's the founder, the original father of all of the nation of Israel. And this is what God says to him. I will make of you a great nation. Up to this point, that didn't exist. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. The plan was always that God's blessings would flow to Israel so that they could flow through Israel. That was always the plan. Now, they didn't always do a great job at it. Oftentimes, because they're humans like us, they love to hoard God's blessings as though they're meant just for them. But the plan was always that God would take these people, bless them so that his blessings could flow through them to all the other nations. God wasn't playing favoritism. He was just using the Israelites to funnel his blessings to the world. 
And so it should come as no surprise that in the end, after God is not threatened by their plotting and scheming, and though he has established his king to rule and to reign over his people and to protect them, at the end, the heart is always turning towards others with grace, inviting them in. The New Testament writers, in light of Jesus, love to reflect on this psalm. It's one of the most quoted passages of the Old Testament in our New Testament. Here's an example. Here are some of the places where Psalm 2 is quoted from directly. Now, there's actually more allusions to this psalm, but these are direct quotes. In Acts chapter 4, we have the early Christians reflecting on this psalm as they are experiencing the world hating and persecuting them. Several of the members of their early church, just after Jesus had ascended back into heaven, they started preaching about Jesus and immediately they were facing obstacles. They were being arrested and persecuted for their faith and their preaching. So they gather together and they quote this psalm in their prayer and praying to God. Saying, God, remember when the nations raged against our people when David was king? Well, now they're raging against us. And so even though it felt like chaos surrounded them, they were reminding themselves that God is still in control. This won't be on the screen, but here's a part of their prayer. After quoting Psalm 2 to God in prayer, they said this, and now, this is verse 29 of Acts chapter 4, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They recognized, hey, the, the nations feel like they're raging and scheming against us, but we know God is still in control. And so after quoting this psalm, their prayer was, Lord, would you help us to continue to be bold because we won't stop what we're doing. In Hebrews chapter 1, there's a recognition that no human king ever fulfilled all that God had promised to David. And to his royal line. So if David, his sons, his grandsons, and all the other kings never fulfilled it, that must mean that one greater than just a human king must be the true anointed one. Not the lowercase a anointed one, but the uppercase a anointed one. Not the lowercase Messiah, but the uppercase Messiah. There must be a different kind of king coming. So the, he, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God never said to any angel, you are my son, but only declared those words over Jesus himself. And we see that both at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. In Hebrews 5, we're reminded that it was God the Father who both made the promise and fulfilled the promise in Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, there's a reflection on what kind of throne uh, David's descendants would have. Do you remember from Psalm 2-7 what kind of throne it was going to be? An eternal one. So how is that possible if they're all dead? David's dead. Solomon, his son, is dead. 
All of David's descendants are dead. All the kings of Israel are dead. So how is it that they'll have an eternal throne? And Paul reminds us in Acts 13 that Jesus sits on that eternal throne because he rose from the grave. He already died once and death couldn't defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him down. So his throne is an eternal one. Psalm 2 is quoted in Revelation 2 as a reminder to the believer's victory in Christ. That God wasn't threatened in Psalm 2. So whatever comes our way, God still won't be threatened. In both Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 19, we're reminded of Jesus overcoming his enemies in the future. That the promise that God made to David and to his descendants wasn't just that they would defeat the physical nations around them, but one day the true king, the true anointed one who would fulfill all these promises would defeat all the enemies, not just the ones we see, but the ones we don't see. So in the end, though it may seem that the world is against you, and it is. Jesus promised that if the world hated him, the world would hate those who follow him. And sometimes it feels like chaos rules the day. You look around and it doesn't seem like God's in control. It doesn't make a lot of sense about what all's taking place. It feels as though everything and everyone around may be raging and plotting against you. It reminds us that God will be victorious over enemy, his enemies and that he keeps his promises. Here in the end, there's two things that I want to close our time with. One is verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's an interesting combination of emotions. Rejoicing and fear. But that is what Christian worship is. It's a fear of God in awe and respect of his mighty power and his authority and his holiness and rejoicing in the reality that he enters into relationship with us. That we can be in relationship with this awesome and powerful creator. And then here at the end, it's a call to all the other kings of the world. Remember, Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, it's a call to all the rulers of the world. Verse 12, kiss the son. Now, in the Western world, and for us, like kissing's weird because it's reserved for just very intimate relationships, right? Husband, wife, parent, child, right? It's an expression of intimacy. You know, my kids are a little bit older. We're high school, middle school, one in elementary, so my youngest is nine. And uh, sometimes my wife and I will talk about, like, do you miss the, the really, you know, small baby stage? And most of the time, like, the answer is no. Um, I don't miss the late nights. I don't miss the bottles. I don't miss the diapers. I, I love babies. I love holding babies. I also love giving them back um, after a little while. You know the one thing I probably miss, one of the things I miss the most that my wife and I will talk about? When they're about, like, one years old, and they give those big, slobbery, open mouth kisses. You remember that? For parents, you remember that? It's like the sweetest thing ever, right? For us, kissing is just such an intimate expression, which it was true 3,000 years ago too, but 
Uh, kissing also represented other things. You would kiss the hand of a king in honor and respect. Kissing was a way to express loyalty and humility and submission and worship. God actually um, saved a group of Israelites back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And he said, I'm going to save these people because they didn't, what he says, some of you will be familiar with this story, but he says, they didn't bow down or kiss the idol of Baal. And so bowing down and kissing at the altar or kissing an idol was a sign of humility and submission and worship. And so the call here is, don't fight against what God is doing in this world. Come and submit yourself and worship the Son. And so that's the invitation for you today. How do you respond to God's anointed one? To the true King. To His Messiah and Christ. Do you fight against Him or do you come and humble yourself and worship Him? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity and this moment that you've given us to worship before you today. To recognize you as the true king. Jesus as the anointed one, as the king, as the Messiah, as the Christ, who came to do what no human king could do. Could never fulfill. To, to sit on an eternal throne and to defeat all of your enemies. So Jesus, we come to you with the only appropriate response, and that is humility and worship. We come to the Son, the Son of God, the Anointed One, to offer our lives to you. And so, Lord, that's what we do. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed as we enter into a time of response, and it's an opportunity for you to come before God in submission and humility and worship. And if you'd like to stay seated in just an attitude of prayer, then that invitation is open for you to do that. If you want to get out of your seat and just get on your knees as a sign of submission and prayer, then um, don't worry about anyone else around you. If that's what you feel led to do in this moment as an expression of what's going on in your heart, then you do that. We're also going to have the opportunity to stand and to sing, to celebrate the goodness of our God and what he has done for us. And also a part of our, our humble submission and worship is going to the table with the bread and the cup that remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Because he defeated death, if we will give him our life, he in turn gives us eternal life. If we will make him the king of our lives, he will rule and reign in our hearts, and with him we will be victorious. And so as a part of your worship response, we invite you to the table this morning. Lord, thank you for who you are, the ways in which you speak. King Jesus, may the way we humbly submit and respond to you this morning be appropriate for who you are and all that you are worthy of.